To sustain high growth rates as you get larger, you'll need to run your company differently over time. I was excited to trade notes with Steve Sloan about our experiences scaling companies through all stages. Steve is now the CEO of Contentful, number 38 on the Forbes Cloud 100 list with a valuation of at least $3 billion and 750 employees. He was previously chief product officer at SendGrid, growing the company from an early stage through IPO and through its subsequent $2 billion acquisition by Twilio, where he became chief product and marketing officer. Steve and I discussed how to run a company differently at 10 million, 30 million, and 100 million in ARR. We covered topics such as how do you handle malaise on the sales team when you have to increase quotas and reps can no longer rely exclusively on the heavy inbound pipeline from the early days. What should you expect of executives as you grow larger? And how does the executive role differ from a functional leadership role? And why is your pricing model so important and what does it take to get it right? You can listen to the podcast or else read the lightly edited transcript on my Substack. Let's dive in. Steve, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today to continue this series on growth endurance. I know you're going to have a lot of really interesting perspectives to share from across your career. So thanks so much for joining us today. Allison, thanks for having me. It's great to get to talk to you again. To sort of remind everybody, growth endurance is about sustaining high growth rates as you grow. So even when you get to a larger ARR base, how do you ensure that you're continuing to grow? 70 plus percent per year, 100 percent per year. And this is really relevant, you know, for a lot of founders who especially probably raise money at large valuations and the need to sustain high growth rates and try to grow into them, continue to grow their companies past that. One of the things that you and I have talked about, Steve, is how driving high growth rates at different stages of your company requires different things. It requires different people, skills, processes, mindsets. And so I'm really excited to traverse the journey of a startup with you going from early stage to mid stage to late stage and just talk about how your best practices have to change, you know, along the way in order to make sure that you continue to grow fast. Maybe we could start with the early stages, say zero to 10 million in ARR. What do you think you need to do in that stage in order to grow quickly? I think there are a few things that are that are really essential in that early stage. And one of them that I think is so different than the later stages is in the early stage, particularly zero to call it a million, is you actually need lots of uh, lots of what some people would call beta, lots of experiments. You're trying a million different things because while you have a hypothesis, it's still a, it's it's still highly unproven. So talking to as many customers as possible probably doing small experiments, having lots of more beta type products in order to understand what's what's going to catch versus your hypothesis. And so in that world, having a team that is very, very generative in terms of ideas and not getting necessarily too hung up on one idea for very long, I think is essential. And you know, we see this with serial entrepreneurs they are idea machines. They come up with an idea after an idea and after an idea, and they get very good at testing out those ideas. As you get into later stages, that wonderful superpower actually could be a real challenge. That's one of the things that's really, really important early on. And I think of that phase, whether that's product discovery or your go-to-market motion discovery as the discovery phase. And so from zero to 10, being in discovery mode versus later on when you get into scaling mode requires that 
you embrace new ideas all the time and don't get stuck to them. I'm thinking about the kind of people that you need to hire, which you alluded to in order to make sure that you can innovate this way in order to propel your growth in these early stages. How would you describe the quintessential person that founders should be hiring from zero to 10 million in ARR? Smart, scrappy generalists. And I use the term scrappy in the most uh, uh, in loving and respectful way possible. People who just know how to get it done. The team at Twilio uh, always loved this meme about there are two steps to drawing the owl, draw a couple of circles and then draw the rest of the effing owl. People who just go and figure it out are the folks who you need and, and they need to be generalists. People who can wear a bunch of different hats all in a given day, they might not be very deep and they might not, maybe they've never even done it at all, but between being smart and scrappy, they go and get it done. And so that orientation in zero to one or zero to 10, I think is essential. And you have to, I think, populate your company with as many of those people as possible. And they have to love the fact that they get to wear 10 hats in a given week. I completely agree. And I talk with a lot of founders about the value of hiring generalists in the early stages. One type of generalist that I encourage them to hire is a chief of staff type person who can go out and just build functions zero to one and then potentially can hand them off to, you know, someone who's more specialist. But I think there is value, I think, is, as you said, in hiring generalists in many different areas. One of the challenges that I see founders encounter in doing that is they'll say, well, look, you know, I'm a generalist. I'm a founder. I may have experience in a particular function, but not all of them. And so I'm looking to complement my skill set with a more seasoned sales leader, more seasoned marketing person. How do you kind of balance complementing your own skill set with functional expertise versus finding someone who's also capable of being entrepreneurial? So it's such a great question. And if we think about the continuum, maybe, of a true generalist who has really no expertise at all versus somebody who's incredibly deep in a particular area, could be sales. But in that case, it would be selling to executives in the insurance industry. You know, if, if you think about that as sort of a continuum, somebody who's very, very specialized, I think early on, having people who know as a founder, having people who know more than you do about an area, is helpful and important. But on that continuum, they're still mostly going to be generalists because as an example, early on, say you're looking for a product person, she really has to have a sense for what a go-to-market motion might look like. She's figuring out what the marketing materials will look like that are going to sell this feature or this product that they're working on. And so I think you still end up early on on the generalist end of the spectrum, even with functional executives. When I think about a friend who's in, he focuses on early stage software companies as the first sales leader in, but he is very, very bright and he can think about all of the functions, not just sales. When the company gets to 100 or $200 million in revenue and you're talking about scaling up the function, he gets very bored. He's not interested in that world. He really, really revels in being able to sit down with almost any function in the company and have a conversation having folks who want to live side by side with their peers in a variety of topics is really important early on. I think it poses risks later on. For sure. I can imagine and have seen that with many innovative teams, 
they might have proliferation of initiatives in this early stage going from zero to 10. There might be an excitement about launching multiple products or an excitement about testing out many different ideas and and maybe pursuing them. How do you enable that kind of innovation that ends up driving your growth while also keeping the team focused? In terms of that, one of the things, at least I've observed that works, is getting everybody to agree early on. And by the way, I think this applies for experimentation later on as you mature in the same way. But for everyone to agree up front on what the hypothesis is, what we're testing. But the third component that people don't always talk about is how long we're going to run the test. So as an example, like if you're Facebook and you want to test a feature for a day, but you're going to have maybe literally a billion people try it, that's fine. If you're early on, you might have to run an experiment for one to two quarters in order to get 60 or 100 people to actually have given you feedback. And so then I feel like when you add that third criterion, then you can have a conversation about, okay, well, gosh, if we're running this experiment, it really has to run 180 days. Actually, this year, we can only run three. So what are our strongest hypotheses in this window of time? Let's move on to the 10 to 30 million in ARR stage, which tends to be this, I think, critical period where a lot of startups can fail. They might very quickly get to five or 10 million ARR, but then start to see their growth rate slow. What do you think allows the company to get from 10 to 30 million? Your point is such a good one. As incredibly hard as it is to generate your first million dollars in revenue, there are a lot of companies that get to five to 10. There just are a lot, but there are a lot fewer who get to 30. And a couple of themes pop up in my mind. One is the folks who traverse that 10 to 30 zone getting really clear about their ideal customer profile, 10 to 30 is about beginning to demonstrate repeatability. You see lots of companies who are doing five, seven, eight million dollars in revenue, but they're selling to a slightly different segment of customers each time. They're selling to a slightly different person inside of the company. Maybe they're selling to the CFO in some cases and the head of sales in other cases. That's really, really hard, A, to scale up, and B, it frequently means that your value proposition isn't really, really clear. And so having a stated ideal customer profile that you can go after and repeatably sell to and solve problems for, I think is one of the most essential things in crossing that 10 to 30 zone. The second thing that I've seen very consistently is basically the pricing model. Are you charging for, it's an app, are you charging for seats? If it's infrastructure, are you charging for maybe how much space they store with you? Is it by transaction? So how consistent is that economic element of it? If you still see that the pricing moving all over the place where you have to do lots and lots of custom things, it means you haven't found a repeatable pricing element yet. It probably means you're going to have a tough time crossing that. The flip side of that is I've seen A lot of companies who get to maybe 10, 12, 14, and then figure it out. And then they really accelerate from 10, 12, 14 to 30, 40, 50. That other getting really clear on your ideal customer profile, what your core economic model is. And then the final piece is what your selling motion is. So in the beginning, you know, lots of us are founders are, you know, a few key people will be involved in every single sale. 
And they go and frankly, their own brilliance and charisma and ability to, you know, create excitement sells. The big question from 10 to one of the big questions on the go to market side from 10 to 30 is, okay, can I bring some other person in off the street who's a smart, scrappy generalist? And can she and seven of her friends sell when I'm not in the room? If I'm a founder, like that's one of the third things that I think is really important. And so I always ask founders like, okay, how, how often, particularly in this 10 to 30 zone, how often do you need to be there in order for the deal to actually close? And to me, that's a sort of a third litmus test for whether or not you're going to be able to cross that chasm. I'd love to ask you a follow-up question about the second one on pricing, because I think every founder that I talk to is thinking about pricing. They feel like they have it wrong, but it's very hard to get it right. I think one reason is because pricing isn't something that you do frequently at a company. Ideally, you only do it once and you sit right. And then maybe as you launch new products, you know, you have to adapt your pricing model. But, you know, maybe at most you're changing your pricing once a year, you know, every two years. There aren't that many people that have repeated practice doing it. I think this might be one reason why some folks hire consulting firms who just specialize in pricing. It's hard to hire someone internally to do it. How have you seen pricing initiatives done well? I've seen them done with great pain every time. (laughs) They are so darn hard because you have to both be creative and quantitative and, and those things don't always, you know, they're different parts of our brains. So to break down into a couple of ideas, one, you have to figure out what the meter is, what the metric is. So is it going to be by transactions, by seats, et cetera? So what is it that you're going to count? And then how much the amount will be. So the meter and the amount. Figuring out both of those, I actually think it's important to separate them. Too many people put them together and try and figure out both at the same time. So as an example, If I'm selling to a CFO and most of the stuff she buys is on a seat basis, I might want to think, well, gosh, can we find a way to give her a seat thing? Because she understands the seat thing. And then we'll worry about the amount secondarily. So figuring that out and maybe just an example from here at Contentful. So we're a content management platform. And so we enable customers to store, manage, and deliver any type of content on any device, anywhere in the world in milliseconds. That's sort of the core value problem. And so initially, because we store content for people and they access this via APIs, we charge people based on API calls. That seemed like a really simple way. We serve developers. Developers totally understand API calls. But as it turned out, that was really complicated because as they start to scale up, guessing how many API calls they would have a year from now or two years from now was really hard to do. And so the team brilliantly decided, actually, we're going to simplify this into spaces. So think about it as small, medium, large, extra large. So take out the transactions, but how much stuff do you want to store with us instead? In retrospect, that seems like an easy thing. But at the time, it was it was really a, a wrestling match. But interestingly, once we switched from transactions to spaces, it really, really unlocked sort of the, the momentum of selling. And then we had to figure out what the right price was, but figuring out the meter before the amount was essential there. That's a great example. In that case, was there someone in particular who you brought onto the team that helped you figure out that change? Or what was the group of people who were influential in that? Smart, scrappy generalists. 
<laughs> I mean, it really, like, it's such a great example where Chris, our CMO at the time, our founders, Sasha and Paolo, we just brought in a new sales leader named Eddie, who's phenomenal. Like they were, they all came together and it was a chorus of voices that helped us navigate to that, the right meter. And then the thing is, if you have the meter right, the amount, and this is where you're going, what you were talking about before, the amount you can play with. Is it $7.99? Is it $11.99? Is it $1,000? Whatever the right number is, like that number you can play with a ton, but getting the meter right is really, I think, really in, important and the the toughest thing. And that was a place where having, again, that chorus of voices who could represent, hey, I've gone out and I've tried to pitch this and it's just not working. And let me tell you why. And being able to look at it from different angles was incredibly important. I'm a big fan of using pricing consultants for the reasons you said. Early on, you can use a set of folks. Later on, I think you actually use a different set of folks. But I see a lot of people being resistant to spending any money on pricing professionals. It is money well spent almost every time with the right people, obviously. Completely agree. Switching gears a bit, in that 10 million to 30 million ARR stage, what new rhythms do you think CEOs should be introducing to manage the cadence of their executive team collaborations? The way I would characterize the change is a switch from really organic rhythms. You know, when the team is small, the team is maybe it's 20, 40, 50 people. The decisions happen based on who's in the room for the meeting. It could be a virtual room. You know, it might be the Zoom or it might be a physical room, but the decision making tends to be very, very organic. The good news is you have, like we we're talking about that pricing instance, you have a chorus of voices in the room. You get the collective wisdom. And that's a wonderful thing. The challenge becomes the FOMO as the company gets bigger that occurs to so many people when they feel like they're not quote unquote in the room anymore. And that anymore, I really, I hear that with great pain. Like I used to go to blah, blah, blah. I'm not there anymore. And I'm, I've seen people leave the company as it's scaled up because of that word anymore. To me, that's a symptom of us not doing a good enough job of going from uh, organic to rhythmic in terms of our process. So in an organic process, you really do mostly have to be in the room or in, you know, in the Slack or whatever it is. In a rhythmic process, you say, hey, on, you know, on Mondays, we talk about X topic and then we send the notes out or, hey, we're going to do product reviews every other Tuesday or whatever the answer is. So if you want to come for product reviews or come for Friday demos, that's the moment when you can plug in, but you don't have to have FOMO about all the other moments where this mysterious set of meetings or conversations are or are not happening exists. I think as you scale up and even past 30, 50, 100, 200, getting more and more intentional about the multiple modes of communication so people know when it's going to happen and they can trust that if it's important and relevant to them, they'll be brought into the conversation. It sounds like making it really clear to folks what their role is as your company evolves helps a lot to kind of manage through this change. I've seen likewise 
so many issues come up in particular around the changing constituents in the leadership team meeting. There's the weekly leadership team meeting that probably happens on Monday mornings. And it used to be that a couple of those scrappy generalists would be in that meeting and they'd be able to contribute all their creative ideas and insights they've had from their customer conversations and internal conversations, other musings. And then, you know, a VP of sales is hired, a VP of marketing is hired, VP people, you know, and you've got like all these specialized VPs who are now taking up seats, which means that sometimes those scrappy generalists, they no longer have a place in that conversation. Sometimes they do, but in many cases, they may not. How do you keep those people engaged when they're no longer in that particular forum? It's really hard. I do think it, it's not just hard, but it's really painful both ways. I think you know, for people to feel like they're being excluded, that's really painful for them. That feels like a real loss. If you're the person who has to sort of do the excluding because you can't just have a room full of 50 people for everything, it's a bummer because you have these people who are so amazing, but you need to evolve. And so the things that I have seen work when it has worked, and it hasn't always, and you do see people leave the company, unfortunately, because of these transitions are one, they know that the thing they are focused on, which is frequently narrower than it used to be, giving them context for why that's incredibly valuable at the company. So attempting that, number one. Number two, creating ways for them to stay in the information flow. They might not be directly in the conversation, but they can get updated and come back with questions or they might have something to offer. As an example, it might be something that we as a company tried a year ago and there were important lessons from that. And they are the person who was on point for a year ago. They can bring that back in. But I actually think it's one of the biggest challenges in Many, many, many people who are early stage companies, they don't stay with the company forever and they opt for an earlier stage company once again. And that's a great thing because all the lessons they've learned get sort of recycled back into the community and another amazing company is built. I think there's always a need for generalists at the company, which which I think you referred to as well, because there are always frontiers of the company. There's always new boundaries that you're trying to push, especially as you're trying to achieve these massive growth targets. So you might be looking to open up your first European office and have a general manager who can spearhead that and also bring in their institutional knowledge and knowledge of your company values and culture. There might be a new product that needs to be launched and that scrappy generalist could be particularly helpful in spearheading the thinking, planning and execution of that. It's always great when I think founders can think long term about what this person's career trajectory can look like across the journey of a company from zero to 100 million ARR and help that person see that they can continue to be valuable. I love that example, by the way, of somebody to start up a new office for a person who you know shares your values. They they understand the company mission. You know that there's going to be a continuation of the place you're trying to build when they are part of the initial DNA. That's such a powerful example of a way to use somebody who you really, really want to stay in the company and their role needs to evolve. I think there is this bias within companies that the newer people are better than the earlier people. It's funny because I don't know exactly where that comes from because I don't think founders really believe that. I don't think people actually think that late stage employees are better than early stage employees. But somehow there's this feeling of loss, as you said, that any more word comes up a lot. Maybe it's worth helping people understand that they're incredible and they might be incredible for 
stage one. They might be incredible for stage two. They might be incredible for stage three. Or, you know, as we said, there might be some people who can traverse all three stages just in different roles and they shouldn't feel less valuable, less appreciated simply because there's a particular stage where they identify. It's such a great point. It's so hard to communicate that (laughs) in the moment. It really is such a great point. It's just different. Some people are runners and some people are swimmers and some people are cyclists. A few people are triathletes, yeah, but not everybody does all three incredibly well. That's just... And you could be an Olympian in a, any of these cases. Absolutely. And it doesn't make any one of the phases uh, less valuable. And I do think that that is a place where for all of us as leaders, really having trying to refer to what has happened um, to get us here in in ways that really kind of honor that because... It is done. It was done differently to get us here. Like you said, it's not better now. It's different because the conditions are different. Moving on to our final stage for this discussion, the 30 million in ARR to 100 million in ARR stage, traversing that revenue range can sometimes take only two years or maybe less if you're growing really fast. So it's actually, it might seem like a big range, but actually in the span of time, if you're growing very fast, it's pretty short. What do you think are the factors that enable companies to get from 30 to 100? For all the reasons you just mentioned, Allison, particularly for some companies that are really just working, frankly, normally because of some external reason, you know, the market dynamics are just really working. Companies can come off the rails really fast there because all of the, all the process that you had at 30, 40 isn't going to work at 80, 90, 100, but you not, haven't necessarily had the time or taken the time to to adjust and change. One of the things that I think is important, uh, there's maybe two things to hit on in that phase in particular. One is you have to embrace the word process and believe that process done well is a beautiful thing. It doesn't have to be high touch. It doesn't have to be annoying people with clipboards walking around telling you what to do or not do, but it's about having a consistent way where more people know how to collaborate and work together and sing in harmony and move in the same direction as opposed to moving in multiple different directions. People moving in many different directions at the same time, it makes for a brutal place to work. It's chaotic. Sometimes it feels like people are working at cross purposes or even against each other. And so process done well just creates clarity and allows us to know what we can count on and then the things we need to go figure out. So one is, and I see for the same reasons why the the dynamics early on, which is we want really organic you know, high beta, um, lots of experiments early on, we actually need to slow down or have less variance, not in all areas, but in a man- many areas in order to get more people to be able to collaborate in a way that's easier. So process can be a beautiful thing as a concept. And I think I see a lot of people fight that, but it's possible. <laughs> the second thing is the shift in leaders going from a place where the leader is the doer. So, you know, you and I might have the title of VP of marketing or VP of product or or whatever it is, VP of engineering. In that case, I am probably a player coach where I'm leading the team early on, but I'm doing a lot of the work myself, or I have my own stack of work that I do every day. And I am a primary author, not just a coach. As you switch over into that particularly 50 plus million in ARR, the person has to change their mentality to be a builder of teams and a builder of systems. And this is, I think, a hard thing for all of us to learn as leaders as we continue to scale. 
we as leaders have to keep giving out the things we used to do to the people we bring onto the team. That offloading isn't a shirking of responsibility. You're not just becoming a bureaucrat, which I will sometimes hear people say, you're actually bringing amazing people who in many cases, frankly, are going to do do the job for this scale better than you can do it right now because they're going to be deeper and more specialized. And that's a wonderful thing. But changing our notion of what it means to, in fact, be a leader at that phase. And that also means, you know, you might have to have an evolution of who those most senior leaders are in order to, to have that set of skills and that mindset at the table. I see a bunch of companies come off the rails in that 30 to 100 because as it turns out, their total addressable market, as they have defined it, isn't as big as they thought it was. Yes. Maybe it's gotten fractured by competition or competitive intensity and density has increased. And so coming back to really take another hard look at your TAM is going to be one of the most important factors to do what you said at the very beginning of the conversation, which is how do you keep growing at 70, 80, whatever percent at $100 million in ARR and above? Your TAM dynamics are going to determine that almost more than your own company. So that's one warning sign or things for people to really check back in on. I think the second thing is it goes back to the senior most leaders. Are we building teams and systems who can, in fact, be the primary inventors and creators themselves? Or do we have this hero and minions model? That isn't just about process. That's about identity. Moving to a place where we're okay with other people being the primary inventors is actually an identity transformation, not just a working transformation. And it's something that great founders are amazing at doing and great leaders are amazing at doing, but I do think it has to be intentional. Gosh, those are such powerful points. And I'd love to continue the conversation along this trajectory. One of the challenges that I see a number of teams encounter in this 30 to 100 million stage is on their sales team. The sales folks are accustomed to exceeding quota. If you've worked at a high growth company through the 30 million ARR stage, you're making a ton of money. Your attainment rates might not be 60 to 80% like they are in a lot of sort of efficiently run companies. They might be like, 100 to 150%. Everyone's used to being in the accelerator stage. But, you know, as you develop the processes that you said, the thoughtful systems, you're getting to be a more efficient machine as a company. It might be that reps are now just making quota. It's like hard to make quota and your best reps make and, and exceed quota by a little bit. But it can be a letdown for them making that transition. So how do you keep a sales team motivated when quota attainment changes that way? You really know all the hard spots. That is, oh my gosh, you are, I'm sitting here smiling because I've seen it at each company. It's really, really hard. And going from, like you said, a place where the vast majority are hitting 100% to a place that's more sustainable, where it's maybe 80% of reps or 80% of quota or better, you know, some metric like that. The interesting dynamic for the people who've successfully made the transition is what frequently corresponds with that is a change in selling skills. It's some frequently you get through this phase where there's just a lot of tailwind is the truth. And you have to kind of just call that out and we embrace it. We love it and we'll pay people accelerators. And that's a beautiful thing. And as we become more mature, we do need to change as an example from a transactional model to more of a consultative sale. And so for the people who have made that traversal successfully, at least what I've seen work is really talking to people about the career opportunity 
to go and have a deeper and sort of a broader set of skills in different sales methodologies versus, you know, there are going to be some team members who are going to want to try and find the next company who's going to be exactly like yours. Just as a side note, most of the people I've seen do that don't get quite as lucky the second time as they were when they're at that company that it's gone on that ride. And they frequently go through one, two, three, four jobs in the next couple of years in search of it. But having that explicit conversation about a career trajectory around a broader set of skills and the people who are up for that challenge, who really want to learn it, they're some of your best sellers because they really know the product. They really know that your customers, they have a litany of, you know, use cases and stories kind of in their, their own mental library. And they can then cross over and be very successful. Another thing that I've noticed coming up in this 30 to 100 million ARR stage is that you need executives who can do more than simply manage their functional area very well. You might need, for example, someone on the leadership team who is very good at having executive presence, gravitas when they join customer meetings. You know, you might need someone who is very skilled at being the glue across the leadership team, bringing people together and generating alignment. You know, you might need someone else who's very good at being a cheerleader internally to motivate people, help them see the positive, get them through change. And it might be that you naturally have all these skills across your leadership team. But I think if that's true, it often happens by accident. I think more frequently, CEOs find themselves in a position where they feel like they have to do all of these extra things, particularly if they come from like a particular functional area, they may not be good at those things. And it may not make sense for them to try to force themselves to be good in that area. So how do you cover for these extra skill sets that are required, but not specifically related to one function? Two thoughts. One is that I love what you're talking about at the beginning there. In particular, you have functional leaders versus executives. And I think that's a very important distinction to make. And actually, a founder and I were just talking about this two days ago. She's hiring a set of new people. And in my mind, a functional leader is really good at their things. So maybe that they're a marketer, maybe they're a demand gen marketer, and they know demand gen marketing beautifully. But an executive needs to be able to reach across multiple functions and really be effective at connecting all of the dots. The expectation should be that they don't just do that when so they're asked or, or when it's required, they just do it. You, you observe it in them on a regular basis. So interviewing to find people who display that ahead of time, I think becomes incredibly important. The second thing is, I think this is a place where sitting down and maybe using a facilitator with your leadership team to use a tool like the Enneagram tests or some of these tools that help us identify preferences, work styles, personality profiles, depending on the ones you use, it's, it's slightly different. But what I've found is that what it frequently does is it gives the team language for talking about the, dip, the variety of skills that are at the table. And then if it's done well, the facilitator will bridge to exactly what you're talking about, which is explicitly talking about the role you play on a team. And so if you have a leadership team that's you know, called five to 10 people, you know, someone is really great at being uh, a spokesperson, someone is amazing at being a closer when it comes to recruiting people. Maybe some, when it comes to debates, somebody's an amazing devil's advocate because they naturally think around problems. 
getting to a place where you have language for the skills at the table, I think becomes really important because to your point, it needs to become explicit. You know, we need, we need Jenny in the room because she's so good at that. So let's, you know, let's go reach back out to her, even though it's not technically her function. I love how you frame that, that each member of the executive team has a role to play on that team, that the executive team is a team that needs its own set of skills. And that role that each person plays, it may be different from the role that they play within the organization that they run. And those are two parts of their role. It sounds like you think a lot of founders are maybe too narrowly focused on hiring functional leaders as opposed to senior executives. Is that right? Because we get desperate, like, gosh, like we need somebody who figures out X problem and we can hire a functional leader there. But are they also an executive? And I appreciate that's a tough tension to have to manage through. And there's never enough time, obviously. I think it's also so tough because I think so many founders have been burned by hiring people too senior too early. Going back to our conversation about the importance of hiring generalists early on, I think a lot of founders think, oh, I need that senior person who comes from the top company and has seen the later stages. They bring that person in and there's organ rejection. That person fails for often like predictable reasons if you've seen this pattern happen enough. But then when they get to this 30 to 100 million stage, that's actually, I think, the time when they need to be thinking not just in terms of someone's functional expertise, but their broader executive skill set. How to correct for that and maybe help founders get past the anxiety that comes with hiring someone who's truly C-level. To the point you're making, all of us have had hiring failures where we hired somebody who isn't too senior, but rather whose body of knowledge is for a much, much later stage company. As an example, particularly right around 100, you're looking for people who can take you from 100 to 300 or 500. But someone who knows how to be a builder of what has to be created versus someone who knows how to run something that's at 1 billion or 4 billion, those are very, very different skill sets. And so I think getting really explicit about what you believe sort of your hypothesis for your ideal candidate profile is, she is going to be an executive. She's going to be the CMO, say. She's going to look across one area, but I need to know she has demonstrated that she knows how to build a digital demand gen function. She knows how to build a developer, you know, as I think about our world, developer evangelism team versus there's this one very large tech company and their executives have this habit of saying, I look after dot, dot, dot. And every time I hear that, I think, no, 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 we don't look after things. We build things here. I don't anybody who looks after things. But what they're revealing is that's actually what they do. And that's valuable at their company. And they're great at it. So I'm super respectful of them in that context. But I think for us getting really specific about the skills we need in our context and not mistakenly traversing too many stages and believing the skills will transfer down, it's a time-worn mistake. Now, the one caveat I would offer is there are people who are builders of, you know, $100 million things who work in big companies. Maybe they work on, you know, side projects or the labs teams or, or whatever it is. And they have a history of building things either from scratch or scaling them up. And those people can be a great fit. But the person who's run a $10 billion PL, um, coming to a $100 million company, It's just a different world with very different requirements. 
Steve, this has been an awesome conversation. And I'm trying to force myself to help you get back to your work day and actually bring this to my close. I feel like I could keep asking you tons of questions and there are many other topics we could cover. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all your thoughts. Thanks, Allison. Always great to catch up. 